welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today we interview Bill Gruber, CEO of Solace Therapeutics. Solace Therapeutics is an emerging women's health company focused on non-surgical treatment for unexpected bladder leaks, which is the primary symptom of female stress urinary incontinence. Stress urinary incontinence is the most prevalent form of incontinence among women, affecting an estimated 28 million adult women in the U.S. That's nearly one in three women over the age of 18. Stress urinary incontinence can occur during regular day-to-day activities such as laughing, coughing, sneezing, and exercising. It happens when the abdominal pressure pushes on the bladder during physical activities causing a urine to leak out. There are a limited number of solutions for stress urinary incontinence and most of them include surgery. 90% of women manage their incontinence using absorbent pads. Our guest Bill was super fun to chat with. Before Solace, he was the CEO of Interlace Medical, which made treatments for abnormal uterine bleeding caused by fibroids. He sold that company to Hologic in 2011. Yet another Femtech exit. I am confident he will do the same thing with Solace. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Bill. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I am doing amazing. How Are you doing well? You're up in Boston, yeah, doing, right? Doing really well. The summer's going well, all considering uh, with COVID, but we're masking up and, and moving forward. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, You guys think it's pretty hot up there right now, don't you? Yeah, we, we think it's hot, but I know you're in Texas <laughs> and it's much hotter in Texas. So no whining from us New Englanders, Aww. let's just say that. Well, one time, I'll tell a story real quick. One time I was at an Airbnb in Boston. I was going up there for some startup conference and I got in real late, like midnight, and it was July and this apartment in Boston downtown was hot. Couldn't figure <laughs> out how to turn the AC on. And so I ended up calling the host and I was like, I'm sorry, I know it's late. But it's so hot. And she goes, it's Boston. Open the window. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Okay. Welcome to Boston. Welcome to accommodating Boston. Yeah, yeah. Open the window. I was like, oh, okay. The whole world isn't AC'd. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. Anyways, that's what I think of when I think of Boston in the summer. Yeah, um, that's open the window. <laughs> well, Bill, you know, a lot of our listeners don't, you know, uh, grow up saying they want to be in femtech. We usually end up here somehow, some way. So, you know, tell us about what you originally studied, where you're from, what was your first like career paths, and then how did you end up here in women's health and wellness? Yeah, so you know, my degree is from Washington State University. It was a degree in f- finance, and uh, went to work for Procter and Gamble in sales. Uh, I was selling diapers, um, uh, packaged soap, 
Uh, I was selling always feminine pads at that time. Um, and then I did that for about five years and then uh, was recruited to Boston Scientific, was a sales rep for them in the peripheral vascular business for a couple of years and then moved back here to Boston from the Northwest. I was in Portland, Oregon at the time and um, spent about eight years uh, beyond my sales career with Boston Scientific working on uh, marketing, some product development with them. Uh, then left to go to a spinal products company. Uh, that was my first venture startup um, was a spinal products company. I was ahead of sales and marketing for them. And uh, for about five years, that exited uh, and then ultimately um, got recruited away uh, by, by Spray Venture Partners uh, as an entrepreneur in residence. And they um, had a, an affinity uh, for women's health. They said, we mm. think women's health is a hot area. And when was um, this? What year is this? This was about 2006. Okay. And so they said, but we don't know where to go in women's health. Right? <laughs> Women so, are very complicated. We have no idea what they need. Right. But <laughs> so honestly, so I looked at six different areas in women's health, right? So I looked at uh, I looked at incontinence. I looked at abnormal uterine bleeding. I looked at fibroids, infertility, endometriosis, female birth control, mm -hmm. and after a lot of you know talking to physicians, talking to the the venture folks, we settled on fibroids that cause abnormal uterine bleeding. Oh. Um, and so, cause, cause some don't necessarily drive abnormal uterine bleeding, they cause pelvic pain and incontinence. And so I had to learn, you know, I had not been in women's health, so I had to learn everything about women's health, yeah. talking to my wife, talking to my daughter, interviewing physicians. Um, and ultimately we developed a device to remove fibroids from inside uh, the uterus uh, and uh, to do it, it, it's a surgical procedure, but it was done um, through the cervix with a, a handheld surgical device and a pump. And ultimately that device did very, very well. We sold it to Hologic um, and Hologic, you know, will do over $200 million in sales of that product wow. uh, today. What was that um, company's name? And the company was Interlace Medical and the product was called MyoSure. Huh. Uh, and that product has really taken off and that hats off to Hologic. They did, we had $1 million in sales when we sold it and they'll do, you know, over 200 million this year. So, uh, Hologic just, just did an awesome job with that. So I got recruited back by Spray Venture Partners saying, Hey, we already had an investment in incontinence. Um, but it, doesn't have any money. It's rolled through a bunch of management. It's kind of a disaster, right? So uh, I came on board, raised capital, and um, and that's this company, Solus Therapeutics. And our focus here is to um, find a treatment for women with stress urinary incontinence, hmm. different than overactive, right? So you either have overactive, uh, you know, bladder where you you know you have this urge to go and you can't make it to the bathroom and you lose your whole bladder, or you have stress incontinence, which is um, the larger of the two segments, which is you leak when you laugh, cough, mm. sneeze, lift something, Got it. right? And you just, you leak, you might leak a little bit. Others tend to leak, um, quite a bit. So more. it's not mental stress. It's so, like movement right. stress. Not, okay. not mental stress. It is. I was like, damn, stress. I am, I am screwed. If this is based on mental <laughs> stress, I'm going to start peeing myself really soon. <laughs> All right, got so it, got it. The physical stress, and so, we, and this, this has been a, this has been a, a significant challenge for us. Um, our device is is really simple. Um, we're just adding air to the bladder, um, oh. and air acts as a shock absorber because air compresses and fluid does not. If we just add oh. thirty cc's of air to the bladder, um, we can reduce the intrabladder or intravesical. Um, pressure spikes when we laugh, cough, sneeze, or do something. Oh. So um, we just put it in a 30cc balloon, and the balloon floats at the top of the bladder passively, 
And uh, every time a woman laughs, coughs, or sneezes, the balloon just shrinks a little bit um, and reduces that interbladder, intrabladder pressure uh, from, you know, hitting the urethra and, um, and the woman stays dry. So we have, we're on a clinical trial right now. And um, we uh, closed on some capital in January, thankfully. Oof, just in time. COVID. But COVID has not helped the the, uh, the recruiting of a trial. So yeah. that's certainly a big challenge of mm-hmm. ours uh, as well. But we have a fantastic team. I have a lot of my teammates from, um, from Interlace Medical have joined me here. And we're really excited because the market is enormous. Yeah. And we think we have an elegantly simple solution. All right. I have a lot of questions. Let's start okay. with... Uh, so my understanding from this podcast, my listeners know I'm mostly just doing this podcast to learn. I'm literally learning live on record. So what I've learned is that, um, incontinence a lot of times is due to women who have had birth, right? Given a a live birth through their vaginal canal and then the pelvic floor is kind of damaged. The muscles are weakened. And so you're talking about like woman laughs, pressures put on the bladder, I'm sure that that doesn't change whether or not you've had a baby, but the difference is that whether or not your pelvic floor is strong enough to maintain, like keep the pressure and keep the urine in there. Is that the difference? Yeah. So, so really two, two causes. One is hypermobility of the urethra so that during a laugh, cough or sneeze, the urethra in a patient who may have had uh, numerous vaginal births may move far greater than a patient who hasn't had a lot of vaginal births. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one is intrinsic sphincter deficiency, where we have uh, a sphincter that's not as competent, if you will, as, uh, you know, as someone, um, you know, who doesn't have any sphincter issues. And so, um, and that's why slings, um, and and many people know about slings, slings were um, really intended and are intended to kind of hold up the urethra to prevent that hypermobility mm-hmm. during laugh, cough, sneeze, and allow the urethra to coapt and hold back the urine. Um, we're just doing a different approach. We're trying to, rather than allow all that excess pressure to hit the urethra, we're trying to reduce the pressure side yeah. rather than hold up the urethra and, totally. and allow it to to hold back the urethra. Well, that's innovation, right? You just kind of look at it from another angle. <laughs> um, yes, sure. You... I know for you, this probably you're like, everyone knows what a sling is. And I'm like, I don't know. So my listeners probably don't know. So what are you talking about when you say to sling? So, and so slings came out, gosh, slings have been around for better part of 10 or 15, maybe even 20 years. So just using the same, um, basic mesh technology that we have used in medicine for, uh, hernia mesh, for example, that made the translation or, or transference, if you will, over to um, for to, to gynecology uh-huh. and gynecologic surgery, where um, if you have, um, since the you have the vagina and right above the vagina is the uh, urethra, and yet um, we can reduce the motion of the urethra by putting in a, uh, a piece of mesh um, in in the muscle or in between the fascia between the vagina and yet underneath. So it's above uh-huh. the vagina and below the urethra. And so that holds everything, but holds the urethra up during laughing, coughing, sneezing. The issues that were then subsequently um, presented, if you will, in some of these patients who had complications and, and um, there weren't a tremendous amount, but those that had complications, the complications were severe and it could be debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, there was erosion into of that mesh into the urethra 
or erosion down into Uh the vagina, causing horrific pelvic pain. To remove the mesh is a really, really complex and and can be a damaging procedure. Is this the mesh that I heard commercials about in the middle of the night? That's like, you've had vaginal mesh. Okay, got it. So then it attracted the lawyers and then it attracted, you know, and, and it really did hurt um, a number of women. Right. So it was really, really atrocious. Um, but it also was very technique related, Mm -hmm. um, in how the mesh is placed. So Mm -hmm. you had to be really good at placing mesh to get a good result. And I think that goes back to, you know, my attitude on medical devices. And as we look at developing new medical devices for women's health, you know, my attitude is always that all medical devices should be designed for a third grader, right? They should, if, <laughs> if you can put Fisher price on the medical device, it's going to be awesome because doctors shouldn't have to think about how the device works or how to put it in or have it be really technique related, yeah. right? It should just be so easy that you pick it up. It's got big knobs and dials and anybody in the room can figure it out and you can do the procedure and the doctor can spend all their time focused on the patient and not the device. Mm -hmm. And then when you're done with it, it just throws, you throw it away and no harm, no foul. But so many times we design these devices to be so complex or so technique dependent that very few doctors can, can do it and do it well. And those that get really good at doing the procedure have done 500 or a thousand of them. Yeah. What we need to do for women's health specifically is we need to design devices to where a doctor can do one or two a month and not have to relearn the whole procedure again. Yeah. The doctors can get really good at this without having to rethink it or have a, you know, have some company representative standing by in order to for the case to occur. Yeah. Um, I guess you work with a lot of bioengineers. Do they have like a whole course on vagina bioengineering like or do you see that there's like a very small percentage of bioengineers that know how to design things for the uterus and vagina yeah it's a great question we uh, um the all the engineers that i worked with in the last company and that are now here had really no experience um in women's health um and part of that's just there's not a lot of women's health companies around right and we'll get back to why because you you brought up in your uh in your uh, podcast with Alice uh, Jeng, uh, I, you you brought up a really good point. And I want to make sure we don't okay. forget that today. <laughs> but um, but I would say that um, you know the one thing that um, we have to do is we just have to keep asking doctors what their needs are, mm. right? And so many times when everybody says, "Well, you know, small startup companies fail," right? They're ninety. You always hear it. Ninety nine percent of small companies yeah. fail. Well, the problem there in my opinion, is when companies start with a technology and run around looking for a procedure to do or, you know, a a malady to treat, (laughs) as opposed to in our last company, for example, Interlace, we went out and interviewed a ton of doctors and said, what's the problem with fibroids, right? And they basically told us the procedure's too long. It's an hour and a half. Um, the recuperation's too long. I don't like using energy because that's really dangerous. And there's uptake of fluid in these patients and I can end up with, with problems there. And um, it's too complex, blah, blah, blah. Well, they wrote the marketing spec, right? And in the end, we, we ended up taking what the doctor said and they said, well, it's got to be 10 minutes or less. Got to remove a fibroid that's three centimeters or uh, smaller within that 10 minutes, right? It's got to be disposable. It's got to be simple to do, preferably in the office, so we went out and hired three independent design firms 
Hmm. One one, desi- one designed tailor made golf club heads, right, and, <laughs> and racket clubs, right. We needed out of the out of the box yeah. thinkers, and we gave them seventy thousand dollars each, and we gave them the marketing spec and said, okay, come up with as many funky oh, ideas. Gosh, what what a right? hackathon, man! I want to sign it, up yeah, for that hackathon. Exactly. <laughs> and so after after call it, you know. 10 weeks, they gave us, we paid them each, what, uh, 70 grand yeah. or something like that. And we got 60 ideas back from three firms. We told them to pick the one they liked the most and make a breadboard prototype. These hmm. were, you know, these yeah. are Home Depot type things yeah, with yeah, drills yeah. and, you know, really junky things. And in the end, we had 60 drawings and we went out and uh, submitted a, a patent with 60 ideas and just threw it into uh. one patent. And that created barbed wire around this mess of fibroids. And then we hired our engineering team and said, okay, let's pick through these and figure out which ones we like the best. Right. And it was that that kind of was the genesis behind the MyoSure product because we learned so much about that. And then we kept going back and doing head checks with our customers. Here's what we're finding. Here's our struggles. Can you get by with this or that? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the end, we we were technology agnostic. We didn't care what did it, yeah. right? If it was a sledgehammer or if it was some fine scalpel, but what we knew is what the doctors told us it must do in order for them to buy it. I love that. You know, on this show, one of my goals is to educate people who don't know what femtech is about what femtech is, but it's also intra femtech awareness because I feel like we work in a lot of silos and we have a lot of repeat designs. I don't want to see any more hormone tracking apps. I don't want to see any more organic cotton tampons. Like those are good. We're good, y'all. All right. And so that's why yeah. at the end of every episode, I ask the list, the uh, guest, you know, what still needs innovating. And so, because my hope is that the listeners can hear, oh, that still needs innovating. Absolutely. Okay. That thing, that thing, that thing, you know? So um, that's really awesome. I love how you, you reverse engineered that. When I think, honestly, I think femtech is where cardiovascular was about 40 years ago, mm. right? I think that, um, you know, call it even 25, 30 years ago, when I was starting out in, in medical device sales, we were just coming out with um, stents, right? Uh, Paul Maz introduced first stent and all the rest of that. But gosh, you know, that goes back to 90, early 90s. And, but, but what we've also learned is there's a lot of technology that's already out there mm-hmm. for other fields mm-hmm. that we can bring to femtech, yes. right? And, and repurpose it. But what we can't lose is, is the fact that we can't start with the technology. We have to start with the problem. Yes. And if we can define the problem really down to the basics, pretty soon we'll find that the solutions are, are really right in front of us. And then we can go grab all those other technologies in order to solve the problem that we've so so well defined. I here. love it. I love it. I love it. One of our ideas, because we have, there's a reason I put the word focus in the company name because I struggle with it. I have so many shiny object ideas. <laughs> I have an amazing team that's like, okay, Britt, that sounds great. Let's focus on what our priorities are. Um, but one of my ideas is that we're going to have a femtech hackathon in a box where colleges can like license it and it's like a whole curriculum for a one weekend like hackathon. But what I want to do is like in these boxes, quote unquote boxes, right? It's probably going to be like a Google drive that we send them. But, um, 
uh, it should have a problem, right? Like, yes. here's the problem that 100 gynecologists said exists. Like, here's a hackathon, you know? And, like, hopefully maybe at the end of the weekend, one of these teams actually goes forward with it or something. So, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's that's the right way to be doing it, is start with a problem, define the problem, and then you can, like we did, we handed the problem off. We, we get it. We're not the brightest bulbs here, right? But what we do know is there are people out there who are great problem solvers. We just need to marry the problem with the mm -hmm. problem solvers. And yeah. what I noticed the opportunity was in femtech is no one was defining the problems well enough Yo. or what the doctors wanted. Yeah. Right? And so I think that becomes an opportunity for us, right? And as you you look out and say, okay, so what are all the problems we can solve? You know, when I was looking at incontinence and abnormal uterine bleeding and infertility, endometriosis and female birth control, you know, I was kind of looking at, at are those markets big enough for us to solve? Because that's the other issue. And oh, you talk about, yeah. You know, you talk about this too, is that, you know, we if we're to get investment in femtech, and this is what you talked about with Dr. Zhang, we need exits. Yes. We need investors. We need investors to be making money mm -hmm. in femtech so they'll invest in femtech. Yes, 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 yes. Investors yes. follow the money, and yep. we get it. We want to help women, and that's that's our big cause here. But in order to do that, we have to make sure that investors make money in women's health, yes. and then we'll get more money, and this will spiral. That's why you can see that investors certainly make money in hard valves. That's why there's seven hard valve companies that have all been acquired. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we need to show investors that there's great uh, return on invested capital, right, in femtech. Yeah. So we need exits, right? We, we need these companies who are doing well to get purchased by bigger companies who have the marketing power to yes. do this. And to maximize it, we need those companies to make money off the acquisition. We need the investors yes. to make money off the acquisition. And then we need everybody to plow th that money or those monies back into new investment in women's health. And we need um, to do a huge PR campaign. That's something that I've realized is that there are exits in femtech. But a lot of people say, oh, there isn't. And I'm like, yes, there is. Yeah. I'm compiling the list right now. Like I'm up to 15, you know. And so I'm yeah, also realizing right. there's this lack of like megaphone, you know. That's right. Yeah. Well, and I tell you, Interlaced was a fabulous success. You know, the early investors, I think, made nine times their money. The last guys in wow. made seven times their money yeah. on that exit. And if you talked to the folks uh, at Hologic, they were thrilled with, yep. with the acquisition. I'm and, adding you to the list. So, you know, <laughs> I look for me. It was great learning, and I, just like you, Brittany, I, you know, I'm learning every day. Mm -hmm. uh, we get our head handed to us. Um, you know, we we have to be humble in this business yeah. and uh, keep watching who's doing it, who's doing it well. How can we improve? How can we get faster? How can we do it on less money? How can we be mm -hmm. more efficient? Right. But I would say, you know, one of the big issues that you um, you brought up is the lack of venture capital that's coming into femtech. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we we had uh, we raised around around is still open uh, as we're still closing on some of it. But, you know, I talked to 60 investors. And the problem that I run into is that the investors don't have an interest in femtech. One of the reasons is we don't have enough women venture investors yeah. but there's not enough right? uteruses at the table <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm talking to a bunch of old white-haired guys yeah. about femtech and you know other than i could say go home and ask your wife about yeah. stress yeah. incontinence 
it gets pretty tough yes. for them to agree that this is a good spot, yes. right? Um, if I was talking about prostate health, maybe I'd have a different response. Yeah. But, so what do you think not. the solution to that is? Well, I, I think we need, it goes right back to what you said, right? It, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, say it, say it. <laughs> we need exits, right? We need exits for where the investors can get a, a huge multiple on invested capital. Yes. And if we can demonstrate that, that money will come right back in. The other thing is that investors are very predictable. They go to where the where the return is. They're, yeah. they're lemmings in that regard. As soon as someone's making money in a sector, everyone's running to the sector <laughs> yes. to double down, right? Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. We just need to be the double down That's sector, right. That's right. right? And so we, we need some exits and then we need more investment and, and we need some more attention. I think the other thing is that everyone underestimates the buying power of women. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the women, the women do make the majority of the healthcare decisions in the family. Mm-hmm. Women do spend a lot of money, mm-hmm. right. And they spend a lot of money on healthcare and, and self-improvement. And we need to show that there that's a market worth pursuing. Yes. Right. And yeah. if we can do that, Right. Again, we'll attract the capital. We'll get the exits. We'll get more capital in and mm-hmm. the cycle continues. But we need a nidus. Yeah. And that nidus is early exits like yeah. you talk about or exits of any kind for that. matter. Yeah, I've heard some founders say that, um, you know, they've tried to convince the investors of the purchasing power of women and why women would purchase their product that solves this problem. But the investors, several different founders have told me this. The investors said, but if women have been dealing with this for so long, why would they buy a solution now? And it's like, because women aren't martyrs, like, we because we've had to deal with this. <laughs> like, it's not like we're like, oh, there's a solution. Yeah, no, I thanks. I love peeing my pants. Thank you very much. You know, it's quite, I actually quite love it. <laughs> you know, well, being very, a problem, like a lady. Right? Because, come on, we're still using pads, right? Yeah. So everybody says, well, what's your competition at Solus Therapeutics? I said, it's Kimberly Clark and Procter & Gamble. It's pads. We've pads. been using them for 2,000 right. years. That's right. You know, so... The, the problem is that we don't have another solution, right? Yeah, we need yeah, we, we yeah. need more solutions. And hey, our our product's not going to be the the only product available. There's going to be a bunch of other products available to treat this, and there should be, right? We women don't have options. We need to create options for them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that hey, it's just part of growing old. Deal with it. That's not a good answer, <laughs> no, right? It's not. That's not a good answer. No. I, we, we we should have a higher threshold yes. for uh, for intolerance when it comes to these things. Certainly for women. Yes. And I think the other big issue is that we need to get payers to pay. Right. Mm. When we talk about reimbursement. We we need Medicare yes. Medicaid <laughs> to start paying for women's health procedures. And we need the blues and everybody else to start paying for this. Yes. Stuff. Oh because my gosh. if if people are willing to pay for improved quality of life for women, then companies like yours and mine will be able to sell products, make revenue, reward investors, get exits, and women's health will improve. That's right. But right now, it's it quality of night life is not viewed as life threatening. Yeah. Or so, sexual wellness or yes. you, yep. Mm-hmm. So you have to battle the insurance companies for four. So we we'll get approval. We'll need yeah. a category one code, but it may take you three years of hand to hand combat with the insurers to try to get it paid for. So at Solus, we're going to go out as a patient pay initially. Okay. While we're seeking category one code, the yeah. benefit of our procedures is not all that costly, but the 
the bummer now is that if anybody on private insurance, you might have a $4,000 or a $6,000 deductible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but w what I think we need to do, we talk about when you brought up a good point is how can we, um, you know, talk about the benefits of quality of life. Well, what we know, at least in incontinence, for example, is that women who have incontinence usually don't aren't able to exercise because they leak when they mm -hmm. exercise, right? So they don't exercise, they gain weight, have depression, get diabetes. What ends up happening is these people become very unhealthy and are really costly to the system. So if you can help their incontinence, these people can start to live healthier lifestyles, mm -hmm. right? Which come back and help reduce the overall cost on the system. Yes. But until someone buys into that, yeah, yeah. they're not going to be willing to pay for procedures that improve a woman's quality of life. Yeah. And that's what we have to, to somehow do. Well, founders are busy, right? Like we, I have so much on my plate. You have so much on your plate. What, who, who can we task with like convincing insurers about this or convincing the, you know, coding people, like how should this be on the founders? I have a feeling they shouldn't. I don't think it should be founders fighting policy to get, you know, codes for our, our devices. What do you think? Well, I think, yeah, unfortunately it, it, it's incumbent on us to, to push that rock right now. Road, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but I do think we need to prove th through literature, right. Um, and also through Congress, right. And Congress can mm -hmm. mandate, we have more and more women in Congress, which is awesome, awesome. right? Cause the more Congress women we have, the better voice women's health will have amongst Medicare, Medicaid, as well as the blues, because the blues are going to have to follow Medicare, Medicaid and what they do. But in the end, we need to show that healthier women are less costly on the system because all the insurers are all the insurers are doing is looking at the dollars. That's right. Right. It's it's all. I mean, insurance companies are for profit animals until tax day, and then they distribute all the profits and claim nonprofit status. So in the end, what we need to do is prove to them that there's dollars and cents here. Oh right? my gosh! Yes. And and if we can do that, then might maybe we can. Um, drive um, some of the reimbursement activity that oh. really needs to happen in women's health, which drives everything else you've drives said, everything. exits, investment, That's right. and innovation. That's right. And how, speaking of convincing, I think I may have asked Alice this, but how do we convince um, the Johnson & Johnson, the P&Gs of the world, the Bayers, that they should be acquiring femtech companies? Because that's the other thing, right, is like, are they chomping at the bit to acquire something? And if it is, what is it? Because we'll build it, you know, so we can get the exit. Um, or are we trying to yes. convince them that they need more femtech in their portfolio? Well, that's a great question. Uh, again, it goes it, to somebody said it goes back to dollars. But, um, you know, Johnson & Johnson got burned so bad in the sling situation. Uh, that they're, they're pretty much done with women's health uh, for now, at least until all new management comes in and yeah, forgets about yeah. the history. But I think some of these companies who did get burned um, by slings and, you know, you look at Bayer, Bayer just uh, ended up pulling the eSure product because that too had issues associated with it. So there are some some situations here where some pretty big companies spent a lot of money on things and did have, um, you know, it didn't pan out for them, mm. didn't pan out well at all. And the sling situation continues to this day. It, it's hit Boston Scientific dramatically. Uh, Endo Pharmaceuticals, which had had bought um, a company, had bought a sling company, ended up um, with the same issues as well, which is why I think it, that should be um, a good 
the education for us in femtech right now that reversibility of products is really important. Being able to um, yes. do a non-permanent procedure. Because the mesh right, is per some... permanent for those yes, who don't know. Is. When you put the mesh yep. in, part of it is that the scar tissue is what's holding it together. That's so, correct. Yeah. So, so now you see people thinking about resorbable mesh, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that's the solution. Maybe we mm-hmm. need a little more innovation. You know, the thing that attracted me to Solus Therapeutics is our balloon is required to be removed every 12 months and replaced. Okay. So it's no harm, no foul, right? So yep. if you don't like our product, you can. T- it's an office-based procedure. You just remove it in quick 10-minute procedure, you're done. But those are the kinds of things we need to think about when we're on the innovation side as to um, what should we put in the marketing spec or the product specification. Removability may be important. Office-based may be important, reduces cost. Women don't want to have to go in for anesthesia, et cetera. So all those start to become part of the innovation formula Mm. for what's going to create a really high, big magnitude uh, impact product. Do you think maybe like cardiovascular or GI, they learned these lessons decades ago? And it's just that now people are innovating in women's health. So now it just looks like, damn, women's health is so high risk. Like everything's backfiring. (laughs) But it's because all the other departments did this in the 70s. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that what you find is that, uh, well, in in the cardiovascular, you know, days, there was a tremendous amount of collaboration between the doctors and the companies, right? And so doctors were doing much of the inventing and then the companies came about, you know, and that was was the early J&J days, the Cook medical days, uh, Boston Scientific. So Bill Cook, John Abel, these people were involved with doctors every day, right? And so that's that's where there was a great partnership. Mm-hmm. But you know, there was you know through the years, um, what, what we ended up with some of the groups, you know, kind of parted ways. And now um, we have to make sure there's a, a pretty strong curtain between the doctors uh, earning money off these companies mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um, as the companies making money based on the you know, the Sunshine Act, the Medicare, Medicaid fraud, etc. But th- there should still be collaboration, there. yeah, um, because without that collaboration. I'm not smart enough to know what a doctor knows to figure out what they need. Mm -hmm. So I still need to go out and get that. And I think one of the things that's easy to forget is, well, you know, I've got plasma energy. Where can I in the body? Can I cook something or cut something with plasma as opposed to what, why is a woman having abnormal uterine bleeding and what are all the potential causes and what does the doctor need and in what setting do they need it and how fast should it work? Right. And how much should it cost and what energy source could it or shouldn't it use in order for us to write the specification that we can hire great engineers to go design? Yeah, no, um, I love it. The blending of the the MDs and PhDs with the MBAs. So important because, um, you know, I'm here in Houston, Texas. We have the largest medical center in the world, Texas Medical Center, TMC. And we have Rice University right there in the med center. Amazing, like very prestigious school, has an incredible MBA program. But the MBAs were like making stuff that the doctors across the street were like, we don't need that. (laughs) That's not going to work. Why are you doing this? And then we had all these PhDs and MDs being like, God, I wish I had this. God, I wish I had that. You know, like, why isn't this made yet? And so there started to become programs where it was like, huh, let's put them together because also, you know, PhDs, they don't know who Mr. EBITDA is, right? Like, we don't know that stuff. And so we can blend them together. 
Yeah, there has to we have to have partnership on both sides of that, right? Yeah. Um, we we definitely there, there has to be an economic incentive for us to get the innovation. I firmly believe that. Um, and with innovation, we can't um, not involve the clinician, mm-hmm. and we can't um, you know disregard what a woman wants. Yeah. And so we have to. There's so many constituents in here that we've got to get them all together for us to design products that will provide outstanding return to investors. So they'll keep pumping money into this space. Yes. Right. And so what we can't do is design in a silo. I can't do it. Doctor can't do it. Right. PhD can't necessarily do it. We all have to shove ourselves in a room and figure this out. Um, and we have to listen. Um, you know, and so, and, and we can't forget about what a patient wants and what women want and what people are demanding. Mm-hmm. You know, interesting thing about, you know, as we've watched the evolution of our society and women, what we ex- what women expect now in their 50s, 60s and 70s is to stay a lot more active uh-huh. than they were right 40 years ago mm-hmm. when they said, hey, I'm old. Maybe I'll just go sit on the, uh, you know, on the rocking chair on the. On <laughs> and the, in Florida. Uh, I'm just going to yeah, go to Florida. Florida. <laughs> but now, you know, people expect to be cycling and hiking yeah. and walking well into their 70s and 80s. Yeah. You know, we had a woman in our last study who was 91. Um, <laughs> yes. And she she wanted to stay active. And she, you know, she three years in our clinical study. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I, I, that's a sign of how the opportunities are only going to increase in femtech, yep. right? W- the expectation of women wanting a high quality of an active lifestyle well into their 70s and 80s is an opportunity for companies to innovate. That's here. right. And that's an opportunity uh, for for a, an economic uh, benefit Absolutely to them, agree. to the to the investors, to the innovators, et cetera. Um, And so we just have to make sure we're watching and listening to what women want, figuring Mm -hmm. out how to innovate together. That's right. And as, you know, just society changes, women are having less kids. They're having kids older. That then brings up egg freezing or IVF, right? right? Or And then there's the, you know, women are, I want to be the CEO, you know? And so there's like this innovation around like who actually takes care of the home or time management type of stuff. Things that sometimes I think fall into, gender bias but at the same time it's like if it there women are the only ones that can breastfeed and so you know there are some things that we have to take care of and if we also want to be the ceo there's companies like milk stork that say you can still go on that business trip and ship your milk home you know here's an innovation to help you do that so um another one more question and then we'll get to our last two questions is i could talk to you forever i (laughs) we didn't even get to have our questions we'll have to come have you come back on but as a man fundraising for women's health and wellness, have you noticed like men like wondering why you're doing this or why you care? Do you get the question like, where's your female co-founder um, that sometimes comes up with our male femtech leaders? So tell us about your experience being a man in this industry. Yeah, I, I, I haven't necessarily I haven't got that. Uh, too much that I know of. Now that you know, they're, if, at least they're not saying it to my face. They might be saying it when I leave the when I leave the venture capital office or when I hang up mm-hmm. the phone. Of who's this Yahoo trying to raise money for women's health? Um, and that could very well be happening. 
Um, you know, I have a, I have a great uh, vice president of marketing who's uh, a woman here. Half our company is, is women. We're really committed to making sure this is not a company filled with a, a bunch of men mm-hmm. who don't know what's going on. The benefit I have is that I successfully created uh, with, vent- with the venture folks mm-hmm. um, the last company, which was Women's Health, yeah. um, and successfully had an exit. And I think that, fortunately for me, allowed me the credibility to keep talking about women's yeah. health. Um, and so I think that has, has probably helped me, uh, more than I know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I think I wish that you didn't need a history to be accepted as a leader in femtech. You know, I wish it was just like, of course, a man cares about women peeing their pants and quality of life, you know, rather than like, well, he's had a long history with major corporations in women's health. So, um, you know, I'm very bullish on more men should care about uteruses. Well, and men men have stress incontinence too. The problem is, is that you know, with the market, is that men leak one twentieth the you know the frequency that that women leak. So mm-hmm. the market, the economics, the are, economics are really yeah. skewed to to women. That's right. And so um, that's where that's where the market exists. And that's what investors today. want to hear about, right? <laughs> yeah, and for them, it's all about the return on that's capital. That's it. That's right. right. They, that's right. You know, they can. You know, they do. The, the nice thing is they say, oh, and by the way, we can help women. But really, what was my return on capital? <laughs> that's right. No, absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's what I tell people all the time. Like, I know you're working on something that you feel is like going to change the world for the better. But I'm sorry to say the investor mostly just cares about your business model slide. Like, I need to know what your profit margin are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but it's a necessary evil. You know, I look at that and say, hey, we, we can't have great fulfilled careers of you know, for me, if I can help 21 million U.S. women with stress incontinence, I'll die with a smile on my face that my career was really worthy. Yeah. Um, but I recognize the only way I can do that is if I can provide outstanding return um, for venture capitalists mm-hmm. and I can make our people happy, right, who work here. Um, and the acquirer ultimately is delighted with an acquisition. Yeah. So it can't just be one person or one con, you know, constituent winning amongst yeah, all that. That's right. You got to play patient the game. Wins, investor, the employees, the acquirer, yeah. it all has to work, right? All has to work, yeah. Well, Bill, this has been so much fun. So our last two yeah, questions. Yeah, really <laughs> Okay, fire um, away. So if someone wanted to start a femtech company, this is what I alluded to earlier, right? So like what still needs okay. innovating? So if someone wanted to innovate in femtech, what is an area that still needs innovating? Yeah, that's a, a super good question. You know, I think the one area, and I, and I don't know whether it's a device, right? So we get into this, but mm-hmm. I think endometriosis is an area that is brutal. Right. And so I've had uh, people close to me who've had to deal with this um, and there's not a great treatment. There's not great diagnosis of it without having to do laparoscopy. I think that Alice uh, Zhang brought that up in your last podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, I looked at that segment um, and it is super hard. Um, And I think that um, but if you look at the the quality of life um, hit, for lack of a better term, that a woman with endometriosis takes, it is really brutal, right? And um, and it's frustrating because it's really hard to diagnose. And it's kind of the, the diagnosis of, well, it can't be anything else because we've ruled everything else out. So then it must be endometriosis. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so that's one where I would love to see um, somebody doing some work. And Dr. Palter um, in Long Island had done some early work on that. And um, so 
Uh, I know he was going down that path at one point, but um, that's a place we could really use some innovation. Um, I fear, however, that the market may not be um, well-defined yet. A lot of women have endometriosis, but it masks itself as a bunch of other symptoms. Um, And so we can't really say that the market is exactly this big because it's a whole host of various symptoms that are awful but we can't tag it with endometriosis. Mm-hmm. So I think diagnostics first and then really quickly into something that can treat that. Love it. Um, and it may, it, the treatment may be a drug. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the femtech stuff is like, we want a treatment, but honestly the diagnosis part is what needs the innovating right now for yeah. us to even know to label it, right. To know what you have yes. to even go to the right doctors and Google That's the right, right. things. Yeah. Um, and then our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Uh, investment, investment, money, we need cash, right? Because, you know, the last company interlace, again, I talked to 80 different investors. They said there's no market for, um, fibroids for myomectomy. Uh, doctors aren't going to do this. No one's made money doing this. Other companies have tried. It's going to be a failure. And so, you know, that for us is awesome because it gives us the chip on the shoulder we need to wake up every morning. <laughs> yes, right? yeah. And so, uh, so that was great motivation for us. Okay. So then we sell the company and it, it's a, it's a great investment. And, um, now people are, you know, thinking to themselves, okay, somebody made money in women's health. Uh, maybe somebody else can make money there too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we we just need investment. And what we're seeing though is that because venture capital has had this huge contraction over time, uh, over the last 10, 15 years, um, we need new sources of capital. So we need also big companies like you know the J&Js and the, the Medtronics, Boston Scientifics and those. We need their venture arms to start making yes, venture yes, yes. capital investments, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I think that will help us. And they are doing that, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have seen that by some of these huge companies that are backfilling the vacuum filled by uh, venture capitalists who are no longer making medical device investments. But I think investments is where it starts. uh, And then we need some great innovation and we need some fabulous exits. I love it. Let's do, (laughs) essentially, we need innovation. We need the idea. We need the investment in the middle. We need the exit. Essentially, we need all of it. (laughs) Yeah, we need the whole thing. I love it. Phil, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Brittany. Great speaking with you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Bill Gruber, CEO of Solace Therapeutics. I love having men on the show. Femtech isn't just an industry for women by women. All genders should care about women's health and work on it and invest in it. Bill is a great example of how successful one can be in the industry and how big of an impact you can have on women's lives. I'm proud to say that Femtech Focus's website has seen a 35% increase in our male visitors. I would love to hear from any of the men listening to this show. Shoot me a message. You can do that through our virtual community and uh, you can join that via our website, femtechfocus.org. Alrighty, Fem fans, Giving Tuesday is next week, and Femtech Focus needs your help. We have a goal of raising $75,000 by the end of the year. 
please, please, please consider donating to our organization so we can continue to elevate the women's health and wellness industry. This funding goes directly to operations of our podcast, virtual network, and events. Any amount, even 20 bucks, we would make such a big difference and we would be so grateful for it. Until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.